afternoon. Can I help you? Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. I am looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. Your powers of observation do you credit, Mr. Bond. Over there. Mr. Bond. Did I? As you said, such good sport. Well, here's to us. Welcome, dear listener, to the Odd Job Pod. We want you to look after this podcast and see that some harm comes to it. And ways to a plot and amusing deaths for this podcast may well happen as we finally get to the Bond film that has, in modern parlance, split the podcast. Yes, this is the Brexit, the Meza Ozil, the Mrs. Brown Boys of Bond. For this episode, we tackle Moonraker, a film, as all seven of our listeners will know, is not top of my list, but is much dearly beloved by my co-hosts. I'm Gary Andrews for this episode, as ever. I'm joined by Terry DeFellin and Graham Sibley. Chaps, uh, good to see you as ever. Will we still be on speaking terms by the end of this episode? Well, of course we will, Gary, because we will all be united in our love for this, for this gem of a film, <laughs> this much maligned a misunderstood classic amongst Bond films. Uh, and it really is at the mark of a true Bond fan if you look at Moonraker and go, now there goes the film. <laughs> I can only agree with my colleague. Um, and also uh, much maligned in a, in a, not in a tomorrow, uh, the world is not enough kind of way. In, a, in an actually good film kind of way. <laughs> yes. I will give you that. I mean, there is a lot of maligning that goes on to The World Is Not Enough, and all maligning is fairly maligned, I think, in there. <laughs> you can't really get enough maligning of that film. Whereas Moonraker, well, I mean, look, this is this actually, and let's, let's start off by saying this is part two of our Massive Wood podcast, because Christopher Wood is the writer on this, um, and wrote The Spy Who Loved Me, which we discussed in our last podcast. If you've not listened to it, go back, have a listen, because The Spy Who Loved Me is a glorious film. It is a film that is fantastic. We are all united in our love for the film. Moonraker, and let's, before we get into my opinions, because I have opinions and I have feelings about this podcast, um, but Graham, it's fair to say that even amongst sort of Bond, people who watch Bond, there, whilst not everybody may necessarily agree with your viewpoint, shall we say, that this isn't necessarily a Bond film that will be top of everybody's lists. No. And and yes, there are there are quite good reasons for it not to be at the top of people's list. I, I'm going to have to rack my brains and put myself in the shoes of others to, 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 to come up with the, those reasons. But I, I there is... Certainly for, for Terry and I, there is a certain place in our hearts for this film because it was one of the ones that, one of the early ones that we saw at the cinema together. Well, not together, but one of the early ones we saw at the cinema. So uh, I know I was, what, 10, 11 when this came out. I saw it at the cinema and I had a great time. It was brilliant. It was seeing Bond on the big screen was fantastic. Uh, and so... Roger was was someone who I was with throughout throughout growing up. He was the he he was the the bond of going to the pictures, whereas Connery was the bond on the telly. That's that's how it worked up until my my sort of late teenage years, and then and then it all changed. Roger Moore was on the telly, and and uh, and Timothy Dalton was at the pictures. Uh, but I think maybe generations before who saw Connery as the definitive Bond, the only Bond, and generations after that were introduced to, say, um, Dalton uh, and the most recently uh, Daniel Craig, uh, might look at the at the Moore era as a bit jokey, a bit camp, and uh, not, not very serious. And I think Moonraker is the pinnacle of that campness and cartoonishness i think and this is something that i think 
I'm going to come back to a lot during this 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 podcast is is that sort of the the, the cartoon elements of of the film. Uh, I'm 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 actually one of the things I'm really curious is like obviously like Graham, you would have grown up and, and Moonraker been one of your your earliest of earliest favorite films, and, and clearly it's it's struck with you and stayed in your heart um, for many years um, since watching it. Well, I mean, I was 11. Obviously, the movie is a reaction to Star Wars. It was originally going to be for your eyes only. And then Star Wars happened and they went, you know, do we have a Fleming novel with a spacey title? Yes, we do. Right. OK, let's do that. Um, and so it had that double whammy of not just being a James Bond film, uh, which I loved, um, but also being uh, a space movie, which I also loved because I was a I was a big Star Wars, I'm sure listeners aren't remotely surprised regular listeners won't be remotely surprised to hear that i'm a, a big you know star wars fan. I, I was a big star wars fan you know when i was a, when i was a kid and so i mean it, it filled two roles there and again i mean like like graham i mean roger moore was my cinema james bond I, the first movie i went to see at the pictures was the spy who loved me the second was moonraker so these are formative years and so the feelings that i have um and the feelings and affection that I have for this movie will never go away, even though, in fairness, my opinion has changed. I mean, I loved it when it came out, and then in my teenage years, when I had a, a, a video copy of it I taped from my TV, I played it over and over again, and I loved it. But as I grew into adulthood and become, developed a fondness for the more authentic, gritty, um, sort of like down-to-earth James Bond, and that, that was my measure of, measure of Bond authenticity, uh, I, I fell out of love with Moonraker and thought it was a dud. I thought it was too camp, too humorous, you know, too full of really, you know, sort of like cheesy sight gags. And then having gone through that phase as well, I can now look at all of the movies and select the ones that I like based on what they are and whether they are good at what they do. And Moonraker is extremely good at what it does. That, I, that is a lovely impassioned opening plea i mean i think if i was a member serving on a jury and moonraker was on trial for crimes against cinema i would be like you know what we're going to acquit this film God, don't I, fear. I can't you must acquit. in many ways it is on trial yeah. <laughs> oh actually given that we've all kind of talked into it i actually might be quite because as ever with any criticism comes context um so my context is that I don't know actually if I've ever mentioned this. I might have done. Moonraker is my dad's least favourite Bond film. He absolutely despises it. He's not a big Roger Moore fan, and he is from the era when um, he grew up. His Bond was Connery. He grew up with the Connery films. Was never a particularly big fan of Roger Moore. Um, and you know, parents aren't infallible. And I infallible, and I realised this when he he launched into a long diatribe against the saint of which uh, Roger Moore was in beforehand and of which I've watched quite a bit and gone, The Saints actually quite a lot of fun. Um, but then obviously I was, I'm, you know, I was a bit too young to really sort of get most of the Moore films and even the Dalton films really, because they came out in, in the late eighties. So I, my bond that I grew up with was Connery and obviously the Connery films are fantastic. And then you had Goldeneye as well. Um, which was the first one I saw at the cinema, which is obviously a fantastic experience. So putting into context of basically growing up and being told by, um, you know, person that you look up to that Moonraker is a big steaming pile of animal excrement, you kind of have this opinion as you go through. Um, now, I would like to say, and I think this, I am going on somewhat of a journey, but I'm still not entirely sure whether I'll end up at the same place of you at the end of it. But I have watched it twice this week um, in the run up to this. And I haven't actually watched Moonraker like hugely because I've, I've always had a slight aversion to it and I've never totally enjoyed it. So I sat down and watched it and having just, you know, obviously gone through the spy who loved me. I sat down, I watched it and... The other film that I've watched that I watched a lot in a row was when I was at university and I did my dissertation and Die Another Day formed part of my dissertation. I was actually looking at product placement in films. And I think I had to watch Die Another Day about 20 times oh in quick God. succession. And my God, that film, I mean, that has colored my opinion of this film. But then I watched it again and gone, no, this is really genuinely awful film. 
Um, and I think I probably realized that after the second viewing of Die Another Day, when I was rewinding the VHS and pausing it. Um, but Moonraker, two viewings in, I've got come away going, okay, this isn't as bad as I remember it, which is the first concession that you're getting from me. <laughs> um, so let, let's kick off then with... Um, with the start of Moonraker, which I think kind of really sets the tone for the film. And Terry, you you obviously had, you've mentioned this on um, your job pods website. You wrote quite a, a nice, long, another impassioned piece about it, um, where you picked out the ridiculousness, but also the joy of that opening sequence in Moonraker, which is quite fantastically fun. It makes no sense whatsoever to me, but it's incredibly fun. But can I just quickly say hats off to your dad for actually having a specific opinion on the saint. I mean, <laughs> that, that is, I mean, it's one thing to just say, watch something and go, yeah, that looks shit. I'm not watching that. So and to actually drum it into your, into your boy's head, just how terrible it is. That's a level of commitment that I can admire. Terry and, answers uh, you know, a lot I of mean, questions uh, for know, me. I, I'm all for honouring your, your father on, on that instance. I mean, respectfully disagree about the saint, but nevertheless. <laughs> yeah, I think it answers a lot of questions for me, that that does, <laughs> for me about Gary himself. I think. <laughs> It has it has shifted the context of the discussion. It's got to be said. <laughs> Essentially, I've just shifted the blame onto somebody else. So, you're like, every time I'm going to be criticising Gary here, I'm going to be criticising his dad, and I don't really know if I can do that or not because he's not put himself up onto a podcast to say why he hates Moonraker. No, but you gotta love him for having those opinions and drumming them in. It's 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 good. And and here we can. I think this year the root of the problems that you have with Moonraker is this is about your father. Um, <laughs> it all boils down to dad issues in the end. We even saw that in Skyfall. <laughs> How true! How true! Um, but returning to your question, um, I mean, yes, I mean from the outset. Uh, the movie is ridiculous, uh, but I mean, it, it has extremely high production values and uh, no CGI uh, effects back then. So everything had to be done by human beings and by physical effects. And, you know, you're starting off with, you know, a guy's hijacking a space shuttle laden with rocket fuel sitting on the on the on, on top of a, of a Boeing 747, which... But the image of a 747 on the back of a... Of, of, with a, with a yeah. uh, space shuttle on top of it is a was a well-known image back then back in back in those days uh, i actually had a toy uh, a, like a matchbox thing of a 747 with a space shuttle on it so um it it, it fit made sense it was authentic but of course the fact that it was laden with rocket fuel and could just take <laughs> off horizontally really should at that point have given the viewers you know the a very clear clear clue as to the direction this film was taking it and by the time you get to the cold open to, to the credits of course of Shirley Bassey you know you've had this extraordinary mid-air fight um this ludicrous with a ludicrous setup where an assassin would rather spend his bullets shooting the control panel of his aeroplane than shooting the guy he's been paid <coughs> presumably to shoot um I mean at every level that on a logistical matter that that scene doesn't work. You know, I mean, you're, you're shooting the wrong thing. The massive assassin who's got direct experience of fighting James Bond is presumably hiding in the toilet, waiting until the moment for him to come I mean, out. And that's going to be a tight fit. No, 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 no. It's all wrong. I, I think the only logical explanation of that is that Jaws is, in fact, a master of disguise. And all, all that time, he was the actual the the uh, stewardess in it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, oh my god! Because what happens to I'm her? You don't I'm, see that. <laughs> I'm definitely on board with that. <laughs> you could just imagine, like Mission Impossible style, just ripping off his mask and. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Any It's very, very clear, and I mean, I think if you're, a, I mean, if, if you, in fairness, if you're, a, if you're a millennial Bond fan or a Gen Z Bond fan, and you're watching that, and you're looking at that, and you're going, "That is ridiculous! I'm not having a bar of this." 
this is a stupid film and you there's probably no saving it from that point of view and i do i think this is an important point to concede is that is that you know you, you there will be people who would they prefer more down-to-earth james bond adventures and this is not that there's no way it's that and that may well just be a turn-off but i suspect if you stick with it you will then follow the fact that this movie has set the tone and its rules for its for for the remainder of, of the film and it sticks to it and it's not inconsistent and that's why you know i think the movie works as it as as it as it does um but yeah i mean it is that it, it certainly helps that the stunt work is absolutely spectacular uh, but i think gary you were right on a whatsapp group you said that the opening sequence was brilliant but then it was also ended ridiculous in a ridiculous fashion which you know sums up actually the movie doesn't it yes <laughs> yeah it does and, and graham let's let's be fair let's get one of the big big criticisms out the way and i think this is i'm getting my, my punches in early here but this is essentially just a spy who loved me in space only not as good uh right yeah i i can see why people would say that because it is it, it comes out immediately after sure. a very successful bond film uh and and they they've they've gone with the same writer and and largely the same crew i would say that the moonraker is the last of the classic bond films it, it really is it's got Everything in it that you'd want from a from from a classic Bond film. You've got even you've got Lewis Gilbert directing it. You've got Bernard Lee, Lois Maxwell's in it as well, and uh, Desmond Llewellyn's in it. And then you've got Ken Adam. You've got John Barry. You've got Shirley Bassey doing doing the title track. Morris Binder do, doing the doing the uh, the credit sequence at, at, at the the uh, the credits as well. So. You, it is all these things that that you the names that you associate with with Bond classically are all there. It, it for my mind that 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 sets the tone of it, and of course, of course, you're going to look at it and and compare it to to films, and especially the one that came previously. And there are a lot of things that 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 does that it does take from from uh, Spy Love Me. But you know what? I think it actually improves on a lot of uh, the uh, a, a lot of things in respect because it gets rid of a lot of the fat. Any fat that there is on 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 the spy who loved me uh, has been removed in Moonraker. There is no fat on this film. It is one action sequence after another. It is basically it's it's a two hour long Wiley Coyote uh, <laughs> Roadrunner cartoon. Uh, where you've got either either Chang or Jaws as Wiley Coyote and and Bond as Roadrunner, because he's put in a, a succession of of ridiculous situations, uh, which are more compounded by a ridiculous assassin trying to kill him, <laughs> and failing miserably, and failing comically, and usually like <laughs> falling from the sky or ending up in a pile of rubble or dusting himself off or going through a plate glass window and landing in a piano. <laughs> All of which <laughs> is hilarious. And if, if, you, if, you, if you sit there po-faced and watching that go, well, well, I look like that. Then, you know, that's, that's up to you. But really, I, I, I choose to sit and watch this film and laugh, laugh hard. And you know, in the times like this, you need a film like like Moonraker. You don't need a gritty film. You don't. You know, quite frankly, I I, I want to watch Moonraker. I, I I might watch it tonight again. You know. <laughs> I mean, consider consider this. You know, I mean, you've got the the as when Bond makes his farewell to Drax, and Drax has yet another attempt to kill him. And <laughs> again. Rather than just simply getting getting a, a, an assassin with a shotgun to just shoot him, he says. Climb up into one of them trees, <laughs> and then when I'm going to give him a gun, which is going to be live, all right? It's going to have actual bullets in it, and he's going to shoot a pigeon with it. But you know, but you're going to shoot him before he shoots the pigeon. And the assassin's going to go, um, "That's fine, boss, but wouldn't it not be just safer to maybe take you give him give him blanks instead of like because it doesn't matter because it doesn't really matter if he shoots the pigeon." You know, no, no, we have to do it this way, and uh, of course he ends up shooting the assassin. You know, but the, the, the payoff at the end, you know, ah, oh, you missed Mr. Bond, and did I? And hands him back, <laughs> hands him back the rifle, and then just gets in the car 
gets in the bloke's car with his driver and drives off thinking, this is fine. No one's going to try and kill me now because they already get one go and there's obviously some kind of moratorium, you know, <laughs> between assassinations. Yeah. I mean, he may well have just have gone, meep, meep, and then run off into the distance. <laughs> <laughs> Drax reminds me to a certain extent of, a, of, of some fairly horrific middle managers who I've worked on who just insist that, no, there's no deviation from this plan whatsoever then you can raise all the objections that you want and it'll get as ridiculous as you want but they still insist no this is the way it's done this is the way it's always been done this is the way i have always killed somebody in the past exactly exactly he always he he stipulates right at the beginning he says he says like he wants to have an amusing death for bond and you know that's that that that's his mission statement he set it out from that and this is obviously a guy who does not back down if he's going to have an amusing death for bond he's gonna have an amusing death i mean that's that's nothing exactly that's his decision i mean if you and if you've any listeners who have ever worked or currently work for a french company will understand hugo drax and that mentality (laughs) he is very process driven (laughs) this is the process follow the process and keep following it until it works or until i'm ejected into space which makes him one of the most recognizable villains in the whole of the franchise i think i think he's a man which any one of us could have worked with yeah, <laughs> he, he is. Had our lives gone differently, Graham, and we had shown an ounce of ambition, <laughs> we could have ended up like Drax. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> he, he's the Bond villain in all of us. <laughs> he's hugely. I say this in the blog post, but I've said it before. I mean, he's hugely relatable. Like Strongberg, but more so. Yeah, I mean, exactly. he is like, I mean, like, like he wants to, he wants to go and conquer space. He's a billionaire, you know. I mean, he, he runs, he runs a tech, he runs tech companies, and he's a billionaire, and he wants to conquer space. Does that remind you of anyone in 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 in, in our real world? I mean, obviously, you know, the the tech giants that stride the planet now don't want to commit mass genocide. I think, but you know, it, Drax is hugely relatable and beautifully portrayed by Michael Lonsdale, who is, I mean, and Gary, you know, this is also a little bit puzzled as to your objections to the movie, given that I know you're such a fan of The Day of the Jackal. It's one of your favourite movies. And of course, Michelle Lonsdale is, is the, has the starring role or co-starring role in that movie as well. Um, I'd say this is, this is the one of the big concessions you'll get from me. But before I do, I would just like to point out one thing, which has always amused me greatly in Moonraker and probably for the wrong reasons. It's just the fact that um, when Drax needs a replacement henchman, he just rings up a recruitment line. And I'm just wondering who the recruiters are. I mean, is there kind of like, is this kind of like a really specialist niche recruitment agency that's like henchmen are us? And it's like, okay, oh, you know, right. What, what's your stipulation for this? Well, you want an amusing death. Okay, right. That's that takes that one down a little bit. And then it's just like, oh, yep, yeah, no, him, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, he'll do. I've seen, I, I know his credentials. And that's, that to me, I'm still, there's still part of me. And this will go on for, until my dying day. I want to know who Drax has called, which recruitment line he's called to be able to suddenly pluck another henchman out of there and then give him a very trusted role. I can't remember the name of the organisation, but it still actually exists today in some way, shape or form. And during the 1970s, it actually had backing from the from the United Kingdom government. This is a matter of, of, of record. I can't remember the name of them, but they were essentially, you know, mercenaries. They were mercenaries for hire and they would go around. And, and, and so actually, you know, that's you say that sounds ludicrous and unrealistic. But actually, it's not beyond the wit of someone with Drax's credentials to actually have access to those people and put in that call. That was an actual thing. There's been a, there was a book written about it fairly recently, and sadly, the name of the company escapes me. But that is not as unrealistic as you as you think it is. I mean, we, we, this is twenty twenty. You know, I mean, like there's nothing that Drax does, almost nothing that Drax does that you think, although it might be beyond the wit of of of, of beyond the technical capabilities of billionaires now, um, it's not entirely beyond the scope of their imagination, <laughs> is it? I mean, so it, these are hugely relatable. And actually, not as unrealistic as they. But that's why Moonraker has got renewed relevance as well. I mean, back in you know in the years that afterwards, the eighties and nineties, you looked at that and gone, oh, he's a bit of a daft character. But now, 
You know, I mean, like, you know, we, 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 we buy stuff from this guy. He has his minions delivering our, you know, our, our flame kicker 2012 almanacs to us, you know, in, 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 in less than 24 hours. This was provided to me by one of Hugo Drax's minions. Heaven help if Hugo Drax ever got Twitter. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, you know, he'd have about 8 million followers, though. <laughs> Yeah. He'd have the Drax fanboys all piling in yeah. every oh, God, single yeah. time. Anybody said anything bad about him. And he'd probably he'd probably be financing some like French far right party or something like that. You know, it, it, it's it, it's it's completely you know, yeah. it is a there's nothing unrealistic about Drax at all. Yeah. Nothing apart from the big space station he builds. <laughs> the yellow uniforms suddenly make sense, don't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean I was looking at that. Those sequences, like in in the Amazon with his massive base in the Amazon, beautifully designed by Ken Adam, by the way. Another massive plus of this film is his Ken Adam, peak Ken Adam, this is. And you're looking at those uniforms. I was thinking, you know, once upon a time I'd watch this film and I'd say, look at all those idiots. There's no way you would get people to wear those costumes and go around and, and be a party to this horrific caper. But now, you know. I completely believe it. It's completely doable, given just how daft some people and misinformed some people can be. It's 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 the you know it's a, it's the James Bond movie for our times, and I hope that No Time to Die has taken a huge leaf out of uh, out, out of uh, Moonraker's book. Well, I I I, I I I think you might be disappointed there, Terry. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right, Terry. This this film is prescient. It 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 it's, it saw the future. It saw 2020, and so so exactly. Well, yeah. I don't. I mean, I wouldn't give it that much credit. I just think it's. it's, it's, it's I, just, I just think that stuff just comes round. Oh, so what you're saying actually is the world has become daft, <laughs> daft enough to accept Moonraker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's more like it. Yeah. And but, I, that, right, Brent, could, the other way of looking at it would be to say that Chris Wood is a visionary. You know, the the guy. The guy who wrote all those confessions novels actually was a visionary futurist. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm sticking with that. You're right, Graham. It's prescient. Yeah, it's new wave science fiction. That's what Moonraker is. <laughs> confessions of a megalomaniac. <laughs> uh, the unpublished Christopher Wood novel. <laughs> yeah. and there is also, I mean, and this much in there. Again, it's just... That bit where, like, throughout the movie, Drax just turns up and he's got two random women that he just introduces to Bond, and then they just wander off again. Yeah, but there's so much, there's so much foreshadowing in this. I mean, like, we know who these because because they obviously they all turn up in in the end of the movie. You know, they're in they're in the back of the Moonraker Moonraker Five or the Love Shuttle, as, uh, as I believe it's cool. <laughs> It would be this part of me, and this is just just you saying that. I think it would be better if the love shuttle and and for everything in there, the Moonraker Five's love shuttle was a Drax was German because just there's a bit of the love shuttle has a very pressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how are you? Yeah, I'm catching the love shuttle today. <laughs> And it doesn't quite have the same French because it would just wouldn't they they would call it something beautifully and floral and elegant, whereas German just be no, it's dust dust love shuffle. Yeah, yeah, it's, it certainly needs to be more more functional in its approach. I agree. Um, so I think about five ten minutes ago, you asked my my about Michael Lonsdale before we went off onto <laughs> a few tangents. <laughs> um, and I'm going to give you this concession because I think he is, I genuinely think he's superb in this. Um, he is a very good villain. And if you compare him to uh, one of our biggest criticisms in the last pod about Stromberg was that he was a slightly underwritten villain who Kurt Jurgens had done, uh, done his best with, but just he was quite weak. Whereas there isn't, Drax is not a weak villain. He's just, um, uh, I don't want to say stupid either because he's not stupid. But um, yeah, <sighs> sorry, and that just suddenly took me on to another tangent. There, I've just started <laughs> thinking about the producers for a minute. <laughs> the fear of us not mad. 
He was just stupid, but he was also a very great dancer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this actually might be my particular problem, is that really Moonraker is very close to Mel Brooks. (laughs) It goes into Mel Brooks' territory quite heavily in places, I think. Well, do you know what? If you're going to go somewhere, I don't don't see a problem with that, really. There are worse places to go. Than Mel Brooks, it's got to be said. I mean, no, you're right, Gary. I mean, this movie is absurd. It is. A, it is. A, it is. A, 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 it, it's a, a, a series of absurd events leading up to one enormous absurd event right at the end. Um, but the point is, is that the is that the movie is skilled and well produced enough to be able to take you through that absurdity and prepare you and foreshadow you for more absurd things and even more absurd things to come. Um, and that's that's the skill in the movie. That's why the movie, for its critic, for its for its um, fans, works really really well. Is that it's not just a bunch of stuff that's been squashed together, like the world is not enough, and not make any sense and just looks crap. This the reason why people like this movie, is because it works. It has its rules. It's got a plot. Yes, albeit a second hand plot. But as Graham rightly points out, it's a plot that's been had the fat stripped out of it, uh, and and. Virtually all of the action sequences serve to advance the film and the plot further. So they make sense and they have their place. Um, And so, you know, I mean, in that respect, it works. Ultimately, it then becomes a matter of taste. But I think the argument is is that you can say you don't like Moonraker, but I don't believe you can say it's a bad film, certainly not a bad James Bond film. And you know what? I would go along with that. And I'm going to park that for a minute because I want to ask Graham a quick question in here as well. In the, um, I know that quite frequently on this podcast, Graham, you regularly bring up the caper element of Bond. Um, and for me, this is potentially one of the problems in it goes into caper, or at least I think Chris Wood has never met an action set piece that he couldn't put a gag at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there is something there. There is always a finish with with like you know jazz hands or something like that, isn't there? About about the whole thing. <laughs> it's a ta-da. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there, there is no no cake that that can't have a cherry put on the top, is it? Uh, as far as Chris Wood's concerned, as far as the second unit director is concerned, or or anyone involved in this film. And uh, I would imagine that Chris Wood would be. Pop- that cherry anytime that he could. <laughs> of course, he was a woman. Um, <laughs> yes, but I, I think we what something that we we always go back and and when I when I suggest that 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 the Bond can tend to go into caper, I think we've seen it in the films leading up to this where it's it's dipped its toe in caper. But this one, it just goes, yeah, yeah, okay. This one is a caper movie. Fine, <laughs> fine. We're we're not being anything else. Okay, and uh, <clears throat> that. That's what makes it work. That's what when you see it in the in the previous films, in especially in Man with the Golden Gun, which tried to make itself gritty, but really didn't didn't really made itself more comedic. Then you you've got then it doesn't fit. There's that jarring because it it, it tries to 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 shift from one to the other. Moonraker doesn't. Moonraker knows exactly what it is, and it never ever deviates from that path never it never says right actually we're gonna have we're gonna have a, a a period now which with with some solemn reflection here and 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 really try 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 to bring this back to its its fleming roots here no 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 you are not gonna get that in this film nothing there do not look for it it ain't there trust me i'd have seen it <laughs> i'd have seen it and i'm and I, and I, yeah uh, yeah, they didn't. I mean, they didn't have Bond hipsters back in the seventies, um, so they didn't have to service them, um, you know, like they do now. So, I mean, it, it, it's it was free to, to 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 do that. And Graham's right. I mean, yeah, Mind of the Golden Gun is the perfect example. We did that two podcasts ago, and its biggest criticism is it didn't know what kind of movie it was. And we can say the same thing. You mentioned Die Another Day, which you watched twenty times. There is a movie that that started off fantastically and then became absurd. And and yeah, I mean, as a consequence, it gets all the derision that it's got that it's got coming to it. The best Bond movies are the ones that know what they are from the outset and stick to them. Um, and this that's that's why Moonraker writes so highly. I, I, I again, I would agree there is a consistency to it, and I would 
yeah, I, I having watched it a couple of times, I went, actually, this is not a bad film. It's just, as, as you say, Terry, it is a film that depends how far you are willing to sit back and switch off. And, you know, Bond is, is never... Uh, it, we've shown this, I think, constantly over a, a lot of podcasts that sometimes it just doesn't really pay to to overanalyze what is in Bond. And I think Moonraker is one of those films. And there are, okay, I actually quite enjoyed a fair bit of Moonraker the first time I watched it this week, and it had been a while since I won it. The second time I went, it's, it's still, there's bits that hold up and there's bits that I really like about it. I think my... My bit that I really struggle with is probably okay. I don't. I enjoy the. I enjoy the hovercraft gondola. That's hilarious. <laughs> but there's a point from that bit onwards, and I think that there, there's obviously you know there's the jumping of the shark, and I think the shark is is well and truly jumped, albeit no sharks in this movie, when um, Jaws starts falling in love. And at that point, I'm just like, I think it loses me at that point on. And after that bit, you know, and I, I everything except like it's well produced. It still sticks to its rules. It doesn't move from its rules at all. The Amazon bits are, are fantastic. There are some really, really good bits. And actually, um, you know, the, the cable car um, sequence is fantastic. One, probably one of the best in there. And as listeners know, that I will go on about where Eagles Dare frequently. I love a good cable car um, in in a movie, um, and also the you know the the kind of back alley um, bit with Jaws and Manuela is is genuinely quite tense and terrifying. But then, and you kind of go, yeah, I can get with this. I, I know where this film, this film's ridiculous, but it has moments of of genuine tension. At that point, it's just it just loses and goes a little bit too far. So for me, this and this might be the biggest concession that you'll get out of me in Moonraker, I think two-thirds of the film are really quite enjoyable and quite good. And then the third, the, the coda, which is, is something which is a problem with Bond frequently, just for me, it, it, for me, Clive, if anything, they've spaced it a little bit too hard. <laughs> I, I know people have a problem with space, in this, in the, and the, the 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 whole thing of going up into space and having a laser battle, yes, yeah, it is it is a bit cheesy and it's a bit a bit stupid. But is it any more stupid than a hollowed out volcano? Really, I mean, it, it, is it really any more stupid than any of the other underground complexes that that that, that these supervillains have built, or to have a big big set piece battle at the end of? I'd say that there the 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 space battle between uh, it, it, with the with the guys in their laser rifles, and I'd say is that any worse than than the one than the the uh, the one with with the with the divers in Thunderball? Well, as a I mean as a spectacle, I'd say it's far more entertaining than the than, than the the underwater battle sequence in Thunderball. Uh, far shorter as well, which <laughs> I think helped. I mean, it's very interesting that space battle because I mean I mentioned in the blog post that we we, we foreshadow the, the the space lasers in Q's lab with yeah. the, with, with, because it's showcased in there. So you're already the audience is being told to prepare for this hokey sort of like cheap sort of like you know <laughs> Star Wars knockoff um, <laughs> and, and laser gun because you'll be seeing more of that you know and 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 that's again one of the reasons why the movie works is because it foreshadows its ludicrousness um, but actually if you re-watch that I would urge listeners to re-watch that battle scene it's actually really brutal because yeah. I mean like it's a dying in the vacuum of space is really horrific and it's, I mean, like, pe- people are, are die. I mean, they have their pipes cut off. You know, they're going to suffocate to death. They're going to freeze th- th- to death and what have you. And th- th- that, one, that one space marine who was sort of, like, floating off into the sun, that really symbolic sort of image, is actually quite a brutal scene. So, are we, I mean, there's nothing actually cartoonish about, about that element of it beyond the fact that I think the issue is, and I think to answer your point, Graham, I think the reason why people struggle with it is that, you know, when you when you move something into outer space, 
you are stretching the limits of credulity because this is a this is a frontier that is still very much largely unconquered. And so, it, you know, it's it's I think you can when you base your your uh, you have your underground complexes it, because they're on the earth, they're grounded to the earth. And I think that perhaps there's something in us all that can can, can consider that and, and, and enjoy that with some credulity, whereas perhaps when it's out into space, that is something that I think for a lot of people, that that is just somewhat something that just can't be done. But I do think it's worth also stressing that space shuttles were really the big thing in the 70s. Uh, and they were very exciting and they opened, they, they opened up possibilities of genuine adventure in space. And this was before Challenger and before the NASA cutbacks and stuff like that. So this was sort of like very much in the golden age of NASA. And, and so I think that it was it, it might well be that the movie had more credibility in that respect back at it back then than it would do now when we look back on it now. And, and we might think that it's a little bit daft Well, people might think it's daft. I don't think it's well, it is daft, but I, I, it, <laughs> I, I embrace the daftness. Yeah, great. I mean, we have talked about about sometimes the, the Bond films and the endings let themselves down a little bit. Um. But how, I mean, what would you kind of, would you say that the kind of the ending does does justice to the film? Or can you see why some people might have, might find it a little bit, as Terry has said, stretches just that little bit in there? Uh, yeah, I think it's a recurring problem with, uh, with, with, with Bond, Bond films. And as we said in the last episode, it, it is a problem with, uh, with The Spy Who Loved Me. The, the film is is faultless up until pretty much the last quarter of an hour, which isn't. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, uh, Barbara back in a soaked through 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 dress really carries it through. Really, I think for my money. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is almost. You you say about every scene has a payoff at the end of it. Then uh, <laughs> with with this one, it's obviously. Um, uh, having Bond shagging weightless in space, uh, uh, how the physics of that work, I do not know. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe one of our listeners can tell us. Uh, and uh, do, do you know what? You know, it, it, as 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 we we've said before, in for a penny, in for a, for a pound on 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 this film. So it, it's got to have a ridiculous ending. It's, it, it can't just have a normal ending, can it? It can't. It can't just have have like like you know, Drax being being shot in a back alley, can it? It's uh, it, it's he has to have an amusing death. All right, being poisoned with cyanide and then shoved into an airlock into the into the frozen expanse of space. Then yeah, maybe not that comedic. But hey, I laughed. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you you know what I will uh, because it does I mean and, and this I think is the, the, the theme we've kept returning returning to with Moonraker is that it plays by its own rules and if you don't like those rules then it's your problem because the film is going to stick to them and it sticks within it, its its whole way all the way through and um, yeah, if you've got a problem, you're not with the with the rules that are established, as Terry said very early on. It's probably not the film for you. If you're willing to put that to one side, you can probably get a reasonable amount of enjoyment. Even if, like me, you get to the end and go, oh, maybe gone a, maybe gone a bit too far. Um, but <clears throat> also, I want to mention one of the films. Um, for me, I think actually one of the strongest things of this this film and as a whole and we've talked about michael longsdale's tracks who's fantastic um and terry i know you you picked up on this again in, in your post um but um the bond girl dr holly goodhead in this is actually somebody who really doesn't take any kind of crap from bond at all which i really i again it, it was one that i kind of forgotten i think partly because i've watched so many of the other roger moore films recently and I think past this point, uh, the Bond girls become much more problematic, and that's partly because of, of Moore's age as well within there. But actually, sh at, at this point, yeah, you've got you've got a very strong female character who actually probably gets a little bit underappreciated and, and lost in in the ridiculousness of the film, but really shouldn't do. I think we're in this kind of rich vein of of where they've decided to really 
make the Bond girls a lot more interesting, uh, a lot more able to handle themselves, a lot more capable. Uh, and, and I think that maybe one of the reasons why uh, Holly Goodhead gets forgotten about, one, I think the name is ridiculous for the character that she plays. Um, uh, but uh, that doesn't help. And also I think that Lois, Lois Charles' um, acting style is, is quite understated. Uh, and and a bit and quite nuanced, and I think that perhaps that, that if she was a bit more brash, then it might have uh, it, she might have caught the eye a bit more. Um, but that said, she was an excellent foil for Bond, and they had great chemistry. I think, um, mm-hmm. and it, it worked really well. And she took no shit from him whatsoever. She didn't even really sort of significantly, fall, you know, like fall for him. You know, I mean, and and in, you know, she she kept up her interests. You know right to the end and you know they wouldn't have got to the end of the movie without her because she's like a total badass astronaut you know and, and, and can fly space shuttles and shit you know i mean so she's you know she's an excellent i thought an excellent bongo an excellent character yeah i'd agree and, yeah graham i mean like i i didn't you know there, there is that that kind of cliche of the bond girl in peril and the person sort of the, the woman batting their eyes and going oh james and you don't really get very much of that in, in this one at all. If anything, you just get a bit of an eye roll rather than batting of eyelashes. <laughs> totally. I mean, like, like she eye rolls her way through through this film and with, with good good calls. <laughs> she is she is almost the straight guy, but she has that wonderful scene when he's going through all her CIA equipment, which which I think is brilliant. And it just shows you what she's <laughs> actually about. She she is just like him. If she if she's gonna shag a bond it's because she wants to not because like she's fallen for his charm it's because you know she fancies a fuck basically and <laughs> and that's the that's the nature you get from her you get you get the, the that's 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 the that's that's what she brings across she's she's actually she she fits in modern times as well actually i think i think if if <laughs> i mean as much as anyone in a bond film can but uh yeah obviously she takes her character is another throwback to the previous film where you've instead of being a KGB spy, she's a CIA spy. So and they're bringing brought we're we're working together for against a common enemy. Great. Okay. So we get that. Okay. It worked well in the last film. And it works really well in this one as well. Uh yeah, I think she she is one of one of the the great uh uh Bond girls. And, uh, you know, if you're going to have a film entirely without any bras, I think why not get someone in there who can carry that off? Well, I, I, couldn't, I completely agree with that. I mean, I would, I would certainly add uh, that the opening, the, the introdu- where she's introduced, the scene where she is introduced into the movie and, the, you, know, you know, I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead, you found a, a woman. I mean, that, and the look that she gives, she gives him, I mean, that's one of the best scenes in the whole franchise <laughs> yeah. you know i mean and, and i mean it's it's just it's it's such a beautifully timed shot excellent reaction really really good and again sets the tone for their chemistry their relationships pretty much throughout the throughout the movie where by the end of it they just they, they are they're, they're friends with benefits um and it's 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 great it's really really good it's like they're having a, a mature relationship albeit you know rather daft movie but that perhaps is one of the reasons why the movie works is that because you know you do have that kind of you know, at the center of it you've got this actually kind of mature adult relationship between two contemporaries you know uh, working their way through the absurd plot in this film you know, until they get to the end <laughs> and maybe that kind of it gives everyone a bit of grounding and makes it a little bit easier to to, to work with that and the bonus yeah <laughs> um, Okay, if we've taken one of the, the best bits and, and a really great character in there. Um, okay, here's probably where it boils down to why I have one of the biggest issues with Moonraker. Is that the, in The Spy Who Loved Me, Jaws was terrifying. He is like... You go through that film and, you know, we've talked about that, that scene, in, you know, where he's just knocked off another person, they've hopped in the back of his van and they're going through these kind of Egyptian ruins and it's very silent and it's tense. And yes, there's a little bit of silliness there, but like throughout the entire film, he just exudes menace. And 
it just actually kind of upsets me a little bit that in this film he's just played for laughs, which is other than the, the kind of alley in the, in the Rio Carnival. Or everything else is, is really kind of played very much for laughs and kind of the amusement in there and the idea that George just keeps coming back and back again and won't die. I mean, we've got a character who won't die in Baron Samadai, who is really terrifying in, in Living That Die. But George could have been and just it, it upsets me because he is such a great character. Richard Keel does such an amazing job with him and just doesn't. You know, the fact he can just with one look is able to really convey so much in there. And there's great chemistry between him and Moore, even though they don't actually talk to each other. And then you've just got Jaws comedy, which is just upsetting. Now, can you can you actually lift my mood from my upset here? Can you understand why? I have such a big problem with this. I, I can, Gary. I can, and and I can I can explain it. It's 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 the fat bastard thing, isn't it, from Austin Powers, isn't it? <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just because, yeah, you know, henchmen. Who said? Who wrote, wrote the rules that 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 henchmen can't have an arc? Um, uh, <laughs> all right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Jaws's arc is 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 silly. Yes, okay, but maybe they picked the wrong film for him to have an arc in. Maybe if he had an arc in something more serious, then he would have had a more, more, a more genuine, more, more gritty uh, arc to to have, uh, and and perhaps going explaining uh, the sort of person he is or, or analyzing the sort of person he is, perhaps uh, perhaps wasn't the best one to be in in Moonraker. Uh, I I personally, and I know what you've been being Gary about the 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 the. the the cable car scene is starts with a good premise and and it it does sort of it 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 does sort of go into 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 the ridiculous well of course it goes goes into the ridiculous it's moonraker um but the fight is is really unconvincing uh and it, it it's one of those sort of things where they obviously had the idea of it and the idea sounded brilliant but i don't think they could figure out a way of actually making it uh, making it good uh, the, the bit where he jumps from one to the other that that's got menace you think bloody hell that's that looks that looks great i remember seeing that in the cinema i was going oh, wow that was that was brilliant and <laughs> the idea of him chewing through that that two inch uh cable car cable was just utterly ridiculous apparently they made that out of licorice i think they actually made this whole uh, the, uh, strand of, of cable out of licorice for him to bite into, and he still couldn't get through it. So that's why it cuts away before he actually go, goes in, in, any any distance through it. Um, uh, yeah, just pick up that chain that's that's hang, hanging there. <laughs> that, yeah, take that with you. That, that might come in handy. <laughs> What's that chain doing there? Uh, this is Moonraker rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> But as as far as the whole film is concerned, yes, the 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 the, the love um, subplot for 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 Jaws is it, well, it's all there. As I say, it, it all signposts you to to the to the bit at the end where he has a change of heart and becomes a goodie, uh, and and so it's all needed. It's all it's all part of the rich tapestry that is Moonraker. Yeah, right. I mean, I've been sitting there while you were listening to Graham and thinking, well, yeah, it, it, it's obviously a, an essential part of the plot that Jaws turns good so that then he can become an ally. And But, I mean, obviously, you know, the scriptwriters and Christopher Wood and others could have could have written it differently uh, and, and either found another way of, of, of turning Jaws good or, or, or not. I mean, just leaving him leaving him bad. And I'm wondering um, what how that decision was made and i'm sure it's documented somewhere as to whether or not that was a decision that christopher wood decided to make on his own or whether or not this was a decision that maybe cubby broccoli thought you know what jaws is great he was brilliant in the last one but what i'd like to do is I'd like to bring him back yeah what we'd like to do is we'd like to actually we'd like to sell action figures of him so we'd like him to be you know a good guy in the end so that we can sell more action figures from him which i think would be a very cubby broccoli you know thing to do and, and that's not a criticism at all there are it's a commercial venture um but i mean it does strike me however that the decision to that jaws's arc is was more of a committee decision rather than necessarily coming from the visionary mind of, of Christopher Wood. Um, <laughs> totally, so, yeah. so 
so so and and, I, and that's why i think perhaps that that element to that arc does great somewhat i mean graham's right there's no reason why a henchman can't have an arc there's nothing written down um but yeah I, I, it's 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 one of the i was about to say less convincing aspects of the <laughs> film but then just <laughs> talking about moonray but it's it's certainly it's 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 one of the aspects of the movie that that, that fails to convince put it that way and, and I think, uh, you know, it's quite funny because we've mentioned this film a few times and we've obviously looked at it in far more depth than it ever deserves to. But if you're talking about a great art, like actually from a, for a henchman's perspective, you've got Renard in The World Is Not Enough. Now, that is an arc. That's so, an arc. That, to paraphrase Mick Dundee, that isn't an arc. This is an arc. <laughs> And yeah, one of the um, one of the best parts of the movie, and what is a terrible film? I mean, one of the better parts of the movie. So, no, I, I mean, don't get me started on the wasting of Robert Carlyle. I mean, about that, yeah, that could be. Well, we all we, we all thought he was going to be the villain, didn't we? We all because because they they wanted to hold back on who the actual villain was, and you know, I can understand that, but yeah, that was disappointing. But uh, yeah. nothing to do with Moonraker. Um, no, nothing to do with Moonraker, but you know, obligatory mention of, of how wonderful Sophie Marceau was. In that film, in there, um, which I think is is now contractually written to every single odd job pod, um, along with many other running things. Okay, so we've come to a point where I we've been talking for a fair bit. Now, how about this as a bit of a summing up? You both can recognise that there are problems with this film, and it's not perfect but on the other hand i've got to a point where i've accepted moonraker for the ridiculousness that it is and i can at least enjoy two-thirds of the movie and go this isn't a bad bond film do we feel that is an acceptable ground of meeting in the middle yes i'm happy with that i'm i'm happy that the, the fact gary that you sat down and watched the film twice this week i mean that for me is a breakthrough oh you i, I only watched it once this week uh, on the on the build, build up to this episode, uh, Maddie, because you know I, that it, it, it's a much it's it's a much loved old friend to me, and it's always welcome in my house. Uh, but I'm glad that you've you've watched it not once but twice. Of course, you are a man who's watched Die Another Day twenty times. So, uh, so, so, which explains a lot. Yeah, your your constitution is is made of much sterner stuff than mine, obviously. But I I think I think that. I, I I am I am of the opinion now that that I am I'm very comfortable that that people can can dislike this film, but I, I I'm still not that comfortable with people dismissing it. I, I think I think it, that's 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 where I come, and I think if 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 you're just gonna gonna not give this film a second thought then then you are missing something and you are missing something that you could really really enjoy absolutely hopefully this will be for me this is how i wanted it to end for the listeners i hope that if there are any listeners who have made it this far who don't like moonraker that it's okay not to like moonraker there's a there's a lot to not like about this about this movie if you like a certain type of james bond film However, I think what I would suggest is that it's not a bad James Bond film. It's actually a very good James Bond film. It's just not necessarily the kind of James Bond movie that you like. And that is absolutely fine and more power to your elbow. Um, but I would, I, I, and that's granted, that, but, but dismiss the film at your peril and just consider that, you know, time changes and, and your palette changes. Um, and, you know, Moonraker is a movie that you can go back to and you can say, actually, this movie, yes, while I don't like the premise and I don't like where it's going and I think it's silly, this is actually a pucker J authentic James Bond movie for the reasons that Graham outlined earlier. You know, you've got Cubby, this is a Cubby Broccoli production. It's directed by Lewis Gilbert. The score is by John Barry. It's got Roger Moore. It's got Desmond Llewellyn. It's got Bernard Lee. It's got Lois Maxwell. You know, it, it's, it's, it's got Ken Adam. Um, and also add more to it. I mean, like it was an Anglo-French production. So the director of photography was a guy called Jean Tournier, hugely experienced veteran director of photography. And it's beautifully shot. It looks gorgeous. The sets are amazing. The locations are fantastic. You know, Venice and Rio, you know, I mean, 
gorgeous location. It is a gorgeous movie, and all its production values all put on the screen. I mean, and and it, and it has a coherent plot. The only thing wrong with this movie is that it's silly. That's the only actual thing wrong with this movie is that it's silly. Um, and if you can't, if you if you can't get past that, or won't, or choose not to get past that, then fair play to you. But I mean, it is not a bad Bond film, and I'd say it's probably the second best Roger Moore movie. For me, my second favourite Roger Moore movie. Spy Love Me, um, the first. I'm going to say that I would still, if you put me down as to which film I prefer to prefer to watch, I still enjoy Octopussy more. Mm, yeah, well, yeah, fair enough. And may, yeah. maybe we we can we can discuss that in a future podcast. Yes, well, we um, should. We should definitely do Octopus. I mean. I could talk for a long time about how much I just enjoy Stephen Burkoff's scenery chewing in that film <laughs> because he gets through he gets through an entire set in just one scene. There's a lot to like about Octopussy. There is a lot to like. It is it's it's a food movie that I'm very very fond of. Yes, but but I don't think it's as good as Moonraker. Um, but it's uh, but it, it's it, anyway. We can we can go into that. When we do it, I mean, maybe we should just go through, guys. Maybe you should just go through to to the end of the of the Roger era because we've done we did a commentary on Live and Let Die. We've done Golden Gun, Spy, Love Me. We've done Moonraker. Maybe we should do next our next podcast, which is just do for your eyes only. Yeah, talk about that. Great. Now, now that yeah. is an interesting film. Yeah, yeah, totally. I yeah. would be very much up for that. I, okay. I think we would find a lot to say about that, and then we can enjoy Octopussy, and then we can go, oh, Roger, you're a bit too old for this. <laughs> I've got some ripe opinions about A View to a Kill. I was sat and watched that quite recently, and I've got some ripe opinions about A View to a Kill. Great. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's do it by George. Let's yeah. do it. Right. Yeah. So, for your eyes only. Yep. Yes. Well, I okay. think that is fair to say then, listeners, that the Odd Job Pod will return. The band hasn't split up after this one and we will be back discussing for your eyes only um just remains to me to say um thank you very much to terry thank you thank you gary uh thank you to graham as ever thank you um and please like uh, you know i don't ask for pity much but i am a man who has sat through die another day 20 times in quick succession <laughs> and you know I, I came up with an okay degree at the end of it, and I think it was just purely due to sympathy for having to watch that film. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other so, so rate right review. Give us five stars <laughs> just for Gary's palate uh, ruining uh, exposure to Die Another Day. It's, it's remarkable that I'm still a no- relatively normal functioning human being after that. <laughs> um, but yes, as Terry said, please do rate us on your podcast. Um, application of choice um and please do if you want to if you have opinions on moonraker if you have opinions if you have thoughts if you have feelings if you have hot takes like at the odd job pod on twitter we are on facebook as well um and i, I, I would be fascinated to know how many um I, I love the odd job um how many love the odd job pod you all seven of you love the odd job pod but how many of you love moonraker and how many of you um, uh, uh, potentially in the, the lukewarm camp in there but I think we can all agree this is not a bad film this is an alright podcast I've been Gary Andrews thank you very much and goodbye 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 star shocking pseudo analysis of the awful moonraker comfortably one of the worst films i've ever seen i can't believe my own son would say such things (laughs) 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 i'm now going to write a letter to the newspaper I'm, I'm never going to put it as one of my favourite films, but I appreciate it's not. No. I, I completely agree no. it is not a bad Bond film. It's watchable. It's just... Yeah. It has, has, has its issues. In fairness, the issues are yours, really. If you think <laughs> yeah, they're daddy issues. That's what they are. <laughs> it, doesn't really have, 
it doesn't have any issues. You're the one with issues. Projecting, come on. Fearless. <laughs> don't don't start backtracking now, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, we've got it now. It's in the can. I mean, I could just like. See. Like, you know, it's like a scene from The Sopranos where sitting on the couch, it's like, Moonraker, Moonraker. <laughs> it's your rosebud, isn't it? 